Hello, Choose Love friends. We're back for another Choose Love podcast, focusing on what we all have in common as human beings, the want and need to love and be loved. We all want to feel like we belong, to be accepted, to be seen and heard. Choose Love teaches essential life skills that we can all learn to help us lead meaningful and productive lives that are connected, resilient, and enable us to have a lot of fun. Today is a special day. We're recording on Juneteenth, short for June 19th, which is also known as Freedom Day and has been celebrated for the last 155 years, marking the end of slavery in the U.S. It's actually also my birthday, and my special present is to be with my friend and former colleague, Donald Smart. Don is a managing director in his law firm, the Smart Law Firm, great name by the way, and very true, (laughs) and has worked since the beginning of his career in banking and investment banking on and off Wall Street. He has triple major degrees from Harvard, including Harvard College, Business, and Law School. I want to note also that you received full academic and athletic scholarships from over 100 Division I or Ivy League schools, including Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Stanford, and actually recruited by more than 50 Division I and Division II colleges for athletics. That's amazing. Um, And you look like you could still play now, unlike me. Uh, Anyway, uh, wow. In the course of your work, you have traveled to over 50 countries. And I could actually go on and on about your prestigious resume. You have written previously that you attribute your success to the confidence that your parents instilled in you at an early age. You have said that they taught you that there's no limit to what you can achieve as a result of strong moral principles, disciplined work habits, and accepting the consequences for one's actions. I love that. Don and I worked together at Llama Company in the late 90s. I can't believe it's been that long. Wow. You look exactly the same. (laughs) We both worked in the investment banking division there for Alice Walton, who is the daughter of Sam Walton of Walmart. And Don, I actually wanted to start out this podcast with an incredibly fond memory that I have of you. Okay. So you and I and Ruben McDaniel and some other people from Lama Company would frequently travel to Memphis on our investment banking trips. And at the time I was early 20s and kind of just starting out my career, learning what I was doing. And I had to publicly speak uh, quite a bit back then. And I was so uncomfortable doing it, which is ironic because I love it now. But back then I felt like most people do. I felt like uh, I would rather die. (laughs) So I remember one trip. In fact, I remember one time we had to get up so early to go that I remember sitting outside an office with you and Ruben and I looked down and I had one brown shoe on and one black shoe. I remember that. Okay. And Ruben turned to me and said, you're fired. (laughs) I was mortified. Anyway, that may have been before we walked in to give a presentation to city officials about 
an investment banking deal that we were talking about. And so I got up in front of everyone and I froze. I just, my heart was in my mouth and I just, my mind went blank and I froze. And there was an awkward silence for maybe two minutes and my eyes were getting wide and I was looking at everybody and I looked at you and you smiled so kindly and you nodded your head and you started my sentence for me. And we're here today and we're gonna be talking about, and you just kind of very gently guided me mm -hmm. and I picked up on that. And so I think I finished strong, but it was only because of your kindness. And it's, you know, this is what I remember from, what is it now, almost 30 years ago, mm -hmm. that one incredible kindness well, I appreciate that, and I remember that moment, and it's a teachable moment. It's not where you start out, but how you end up. Correct. Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> right. I yes. remember that. I remember that well. Yes. So it's amazing. We were talking earlier that uh, everything came together. <laughs> we had planned this podcast earlier, and it just happened to happen on Juneteenth, which is a really special day, and my birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. You're my birthday present. <laughs> and this podcast is the icing on the cake. Yes, for sure. So I think it's pretty amazing that our lives have come back together again. I started the Choose Love movement with the foundational message that we're all the same in the want and need mm -hmm. to love and be loved and to spread Jesse's chalkboard message of nurturing, healing, love. That's quite a diversion from what I was doing in Arkansas when I worked at Llama Company. And you have continued to be an attorney, um, but you're also working with the Stratford Police in a police engagement program that you had told me about. And this is prior to everything that's happening now um, that's getting so much attention, George Floyd's murder, and what's going on. And so you sent me some material. I was reading up a little bit on what your police engagement program is about to build and maintain positive and meaningful relationships with the community and teaching a methodology designed to train police officers and the public in de-escalation techniques. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, absolutely. You know, I was working in my garden about five years ago and I was put upon because yet another unarmed African-American had been killed by uh, police officers. And I was trying to, literally thinking at that moment, what can I do to help? What can I do to address a policing culture uh, or system that is broken in an important respect? And at that time, a sergeant, James Lofton, came over and asked me whether or not I would agree to work with the Stratford Police Department. He and his colleagues, uh, Lieutenant Eller and Community Coordinator Aaron McLaughlin, they come together to develop and design the police engagement program, and they wanted me to help on Fourth Amendment issues and to develop answers and do research on various questions that would come up in the course of this program. 
Fourth Amendment is the right against unreasonable search and seizure. And uh, the Fourth Amendment is the critical amendment that always comes up and plays a role with any police stop, with almost any interaction with law enforcement. And so many of the high profile cases involve issues surrounding Fourth Amendment rights and so forth. And uh, the idea at the time was to be able to provide a constitutional law perspective and to be able to help uh, the officers discuss what went right and what went wrong in some of the many, unfortunately, high profile cases involving the deaths of uh, citizens in, in this country. So mm -hmm. that's how, um, that's the origin story for how I became involved with the police engagement program. Can you describe a little bit about what happened in that and, and what that looks like for anybody listening that might be interested in expanding that into where they live? Well, it's two things, and I'll get right to the point. The underlying purpose, the motivation, the mission statement is to have a conversation. What are the best practices to follow when you are involved with a police stop, traffic stop, or individual um, coming to someone's home. Is this from uh, the police point of view or from both points of view? From both points of view. Okay. From both points of view. Mm -hmm. um, the idea is for everyone to be able to get home safely to family and loved ones at the end of the experience. And so the focus is on developing empathy for each other, mm -hmm. officer to citizen, citizen to officer, to have compassion in the moment, which is consistent with and dovetails with emotional learning, uh, social learning, and at the end of the day, to focus on the development of and use of de-escalation techniques so that what is an otherwise ordinary encounter or exchange doesn't end up with the loss of life. Mm -hmm. That, in a nutshell, is what the program seeks to do. And uh, the police engagement program does this by starting out with open discussion, going through the uh, results of various national studies on de-escalation techniques, community policing, best practices to follow. We then move on to various shoot, don't shoot scenarios where participants take the role of police officers and they're able to see and realize for themselves in this controlled exercise the anxiety, the energy, all of the feelings of an officer might feel in that split second when they have to decide uh, whether to use force or what is the right way, what is the wrong way. The shoot, don't shoot scenarios are very, very helpful as far as being able to portray what officers may encounter mm. in their everyday experiences. We uh, then move on to look at as many high profile cases as time allows, the uh, shootings of different unarmed citizens across the country. And what we try to do, what the officers do, is to go through the video pointing out what was correct, what was not correct, with an emphasis on those de-escalation techniques that could have prevented this situation from ending in a senseless death. So over the course of two to two and a half hours, that is the program. Almost everyone is different, um, but what's consistent from one program to the next is 
focusing on trying to help citizens and other officers understand what are the best practices to follow. Uh, it's a two-way street. Compliance doesn't mean you do this, or otherwise you're going to have an issue. Compliance means understanding the context, understanding from an officer's perspective what is going on with a police stop so that you can move through the process. Increasingly, the emphasis is also on what is required, what must officers do to comply with their oath, to comply with their sworn oath of office mm -hmm. to protect and to serve. Mm -hmm. So that compliance goes both ways, not just working with or being responsive to an officer's commands in a police stop, it is also discussing with officers going through various exercises and, and conversation on what officers must do in order to be in compliance with their sworn oath of office. So it's a, it's a two-way street, and that's what really makes the police engagement program different and, and useful as far as learning empathy, developing compassion, mm -hmm. and best practices what you need to do when you find yourself in a police stop. And so that leads to calm, cool, and comply, which is what you were talking about, correct? Uh, that is correct. The idea behind calm, cool, and collect is to, in effect, tuck in all the best practices under this signature line, calm, cool, and comply, so that when you find yourself in a situation, then the calm, cool, and comply uh, serves as a mnemonic device, if you will, to remember the different steps that you should take in order to take the anxiety or the craziness out of the situation. It's a situation where most individuals have so much to say on whether or not they have any Fourth Amendment rights. A stop may not be by the book, but you could do something or something could happen and the weird thing about the Fourth Amendment is the Fourth Amendment, your right against unreasonable search and seizure, is almost always on display as an exception to the Fourth Amendment requirement that there be a warrant and probable cause to stop you. A traffic stop, for example, is an exception to the Fourth Amendment rule. You still have Fourth Amendment rights, but if you think about it, your rights are truncated, they are weaker, and unfortunately, you have many situations where it might be, from a technical point of view, it's not a good stop. You do something, you say something, and it morphs into resisting arrest or something, a physical confrontation, and then, ironically, your Fourth Amendment rights begin to disappear almost altogether and you find yourself in a deadly situation. We shared an article a couple days ago about the neuroscience mm -hmm. behind that kind of situation that you just described. What happens in the brain? And it, it really points to the need for something like calm, cool, and comply. Because, I mean, myself, when I'm stopped by the police, and I have been, for speeding or whatever. I know my heart is racing, my mm -hmm. palms are sweaty. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to see those lights behind you, it's, uh, it's interesting to know what happens physiologically to your body and your brain. And then if you escalate that into a situation where 
a police officer might think that you're resisting or might even be threatened, either one, you have this situation where you go into freeze, fight, or flight, and that literally cuts off your prefrontal cortex. That's where your logic and reasoning reside. And so you're in this kind of situation where your brain has put up its dukes and you're completely in defense. And so when you understand the neuroscience behind that situation, you can see how some of what's happening in the news, just now getting attention, but has been happening for quite a while, um, actually happens. Mm-hmm. Well, what people don't always realize is that the police traffic stop is the most dangerous part of the day for any officer. Every encounter can be deadly. Mm. It can end badly. And that's not always fully appreciated. It is from an officer's perspective, and it will explain a lot about the sternness or the high degree of alert as a police officer approaches a vehicle three o'clock in the morning, um, it's dark, there may not be anyone around. That is a very dangerous situation. And so to your point, uh, it's a matter of high anxiety on both sides. And so the police engagement program tries to break down what are specific things that you can do to bring the temperature down from a boil and to try to get on a more two-way, a more uh, relaxed posture to provide the information that the officer needs and for you to get information on why you were stopped or what, what has happened. But make no mistake about it, it uh, is a very dangerous moment in the life of a police officer and in a citizen. And so that's why uh, the need for a police engagement program and similar programs is as relevant and as topical as it ever has been. I think it's a necessity for all police departments. I know my stepson is a policeman in New Jersey and I asked him if he had ever heard of it and he hadn't. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that he just went through his training protocol and I know they did a little bit of that, but I also know that it's a really good practice, uh, a really good thing to practice. You know, our, our brains are wired for our survival And we focus on the negative, and especially with a police officer, I totally respect the fact that their jobs put their lives on the line every day. And so I think that it would be really important for them to understand, to have techniques that they can use. I mean, we're teaching techniques to kids (laughs) in schools that help them to self-regulate in certain situations that arise on the playground or even in the classroom. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. These techniques have to be taught. It's not like we're born with the ability to self-regulate. And they can be taught. Yes. And so it's really important, I think, that we all have an open mind. Actually, I guess it's called a growth mindset that we can improve and we can get better, and we continue to learn and grow for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what happens, Scarlett, is that 
when the program begins, and every program is different, uh, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes before participants uh, and sometimes officers as well realize that this is a unique opportunity to have meaningful dialogue, intelligent conversation with a police officer about police stops and criminal matters and not at two o'clock in the morning or not under a very stressful situation. And uh, as often as not, it's not just the information that the police officers share uh, with participants. Here's what we're supposed to do and here's what you may wish to do in order to get home safely to loved ones. It's not just the value of that, it's also the opportunity on both sides to hear testimony where people talk about their experiences. Um, as often as not, the education as far as participating police officers is concerned is listening to the heartfelt and personal stories. Here's what happened when I was stopped. Here's what happened when my brother was stopped or my uncle or my mother. And at the end of the day, this exchange resonates as we go further and dig deeper into, well, what uh, happened correctly? What did not happen correctly? Why do, why do we do this? Why do we go to the passenger side? Why do we shine the light? Specifics so that when an individual finds themselves in that situation, then they can help to de-escalate the situation by compliance. And mm -hmm. at the end, compliance is not, you do this, you do that, and you'll survive, so much as understanding the context within which a police traffic stop takes place. And with that knowledge, being able to help from you know either side to de-escalate the situation so it doesn't result in the use of physical violence or, or death. Mm -hmm. uh, after all, police officers have a lethal weapon and they are uh, authorized agents of the police power of the state. So they have tremendous responsibility and they literally carry the power of life or death in, in their hands. So this is a serious situation. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention one of the most, uh, always a poignant and um, arresting moment in every police engagement program, particularly in light of what's been happening in our country lately. Mm -hmm. All right, I remain calm, cool, and comply. I do everything right. I do everything that you recommend and that seems to make sense in the moment. And we see a number of high-profile cases, one after another, where compliance and awareness is dutifully followed, and the person still ends up, you know, shot or, or maimed or killed. And there isn't an immediate answer, there isn't a perfect answer, so much as the protests, the conversations, the testimony, police reform, changing police culture, all of that is part of a broader solution to the paradox, I complied, I've done everything, and I and this person did the same, they still ended up dead. And I believe we then look at the consequences of police culture, we look at the consequences of institutionalized racism or systemic racism, we look at racial profiling, mm -hmm. and that is mm -hmm. a much, much broader, nuanced, and more complicated conversation to have 
and we are having that conversation in this country at this moment. Which is really amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think, I know you and I want to continue that progress. Mm -hmm. And that's why mm -hmm. we're doing this on Juneteenth. I mean, on it just, Juneteenth, right? Yes. Uh, it's it's just, kind of remarkable. It's yes. really remarkable. Mm -hmm. And that gets us into talking about the social injustice that we're seeing today and how long that's been going on. And I know, you know, it's interesting. So we're so divided in this country politically and in other ways. And I've had a bunch of these conversations with both sides, if you will. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I feel like we all want the same thing. I really do. I mean, there may be a small contingent of people, but I think we all want to live in a safe, peaceful, loving environment. We want people to be able to succeed, to have meaningful and purpose-filled lives. We want that. If you ask people, they want that, right? Um, I think we all want to be part of the solution, right? Mm -hmm. And we talked about this earlier too. It's in our heads, mm -hmm. it's in our heads, but how do we carry this out? How do we make this a reality in our country? And what are your thoughts about that? Because I think if you asked everybody, we have this ideal in our minds. Some people may think we're living in it, some people don't, but how can we all be a part of the solution to the racial inequity? Because I've seen it. Mm -hmm. It exists. How can we help? Well, it's kind of funny. We, we go back to the Greek concept uh, demos of the people. And we have a system of government of the people. And if we look at the words of the Constitution, we the people, uh, this is our government, uh, and this is the government that we have chosen to uh, govern and represent our society. So to me, the first step is to fully inhabit the responsibility of a citizen, of citizenship. And that means to participate in whatever way that makes sense for you, whether it is working with your legislator, whether it is writing letters to your elected officials or to the editorial board, mm -hmm. uh, whether it is engaging in the peaceful protest in, in different ways, this is meaningful. The issue of racism in America is so broad and has so many different tentacles. Um, it's almost like a complex math problem. You don't have to solve every single aspect of it. Start where you are comfortable. Start where you can make a difference. For example, in my instance, I have a background in constitutional law, so working with the Stratford Police on Fourth Amendment and First Amendment issues is the way that I'm trying to contribute to the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, everyone has unique skills or experiences where they can contribute. In your instance, the Choose Love Foundation and the educational tenets that underlie your program are very valuable because when we see these high-profile cases, when we examine what we believe is racial profiling or racial injustice, then I believe, and many are inclined to believe, that 
The development of empathy, emotional intelligence, social intelligence goes a long ways towards, you know, helping to solve the problem by first identifying it, by accepting it. I think that what one thing that's come out of the extraordinary and tumultuous movement across the country in the last couple of weeks in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's untimely death is that enough is enough. We have to do something. And what that something is breaks down again based on what you're comfortable with and what your background is. But make no question about it, America, you know, the white community and the black community, we have the capacity to make the change if we have the courage to do so. And it's just like the Choose Love Foundation having the courage to close the gap between what we know we need to do, what we say we're all about, what we say who we really are, mm -hmm. actually taking individual responsibility in whatever way that you, you can uh, in order to contribute to solving the problem. That's how we get started. I totally agree. It's taking personal responsibility. I think too often we see things playing out and we're kind of like armchair warriors. You know, we have a lot to say about it, but we don't actually do anything. And I think it's modeling for our children what that love looks like and acceptance and belonging. And when we do that, it helps us be our best self. When you're realizing that every action that you take and every word that you say is mm -hmm. teaching your kids, it makes you very mindful about that and it helps you be your highest self. I have Nelson Mandela's quote that I show in almost the first one of my slides every single time I talk and it says, children must be taught to hate. And if they can be taught to hate, they can be taught to love, for love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Yes. And yes. that's it. Yes. That's it. We continue to perpetuate hate. And it's, I just, you know, we talk about moral outrage. And I think there's some similarity between what's going on now with the protests and even uh, the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. So we have 26 people, uh, really 28 dead, including the shooter and his mother, and then 21st graders shot in two classrooms and six educators and administrators. And where was the moral outrage of that mm -hmm. in America? I mean, I'm talking moral outrage. So there was so much empathy. There was empathy and compassion. I mean, we got cards and gifts from all over the world. It filled mm -hmm. up warehouses and then mm -hmm. they would be depleted and filled them up again. And people still expressed their love and concern, which is wonderful. But where was the moral outrage that something like that could happen? That children can, I mean, because we know that Adam Lanza, the shooter, wasn't born that way he was cultivated into what he became and it's happening now it's it's our new normal I'm not moving away from the topic I'm mm. I think I'm encompassing a lot of things that are happening in America yes. today and so what we've done is allow it to become our new normal 
and we have one school-related shooting per week. In fact, 2018 was the deadliest year on record. So I'm comparing that. It's like, wh- where is the moral outrage? We, we know right from wrong. And is it that it's in our heads and we just don't act upon it? I, I, I'm reading a book called The Choice mm-hmm. by Dr. Eggers, and she was a concentration camp prisoner Mm -hmm. and now she's a corporate trainer and coach and she's elderly now she was but she talks about how they took young Jewish boy and they hung him upside down and used him for shooting practice so they'd shoot his foot then they'd shoot his hand I think they shot his ear off before they eventually killed him we're capable of incredible horrific violence as human beings um, we're also capable of incredible love. Uh, and we really need to nurture that loving choice. I mean, ultimately, ultimately it is a choice. Mm-hmm. And we need to empower people to understand that they can choose love in every situation. And we need to be modeling this. And I think that um, the beauty of the choose love approach is to create a way to learn those best practices, to learn how to love, to learn how to accept that everyone is the same and to develop compassion and empathy for the other. Dr. King had a remarkable saying that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And the way I see that applying to the current situation, America, our country, has amazing resources and a tremendous amount of love and compassion. We are still an exceptional society. But in order to live out the full measure of that creed, then to your point earlier, we have to find a way collectively and individually to channel the courage to do what we need to do uh, in order to move forward. Our good president, Abraham Lincoln, said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. We're divided in certain ways, but it can be fixed. And the way forward is mutual empathy, compassion, and again, having the courage to do the right thing, having the courage to do whatever we need to do to move forward as a society. And that that time is now. That time is now. We cannot hold ourselves out as this exceptional political and social experiment while at the same time then there isn't equal justice, social justice. There isn't a sense of being in this experiment together. That is what I believe we have to get back to. I completely agree. We need to rise to the occasion and it does take courage. It takes courage to get it out of our heads and into motion. And of course, when I think about courage, I have to mention Jesse. Jesse at six years old faced his shooter as he came into his first grade classroom. His final act was to save nine of his classmates' lives before losing his own. I talk about that courage because that is the exact same courage that we all have within us. He was a six-year-old little boy. He didn't have anything that we don't all have. It's just that, and science tells us this, courage is like a muscle. 
And we have to be aware that we have it and we have to practice it. And we practice it every single day in, in small things, like everyday acts of courage are when we're kind, when someone is not kind to us, when we do the right thing, even though maybe not doing the right thing would be fun, fast, and easy, Yes. but we have the courage to do the right thing. We're seeing the courage now to speak up and to speak out and to speak our truth, that takes a lot of courage. It takes courage to face our fear. And I really believe, I don't know about you, but uh, every decision that we make is based upon a foundation of either love or fear. And the outcomes look vastly different. And I think we need to educate our kids so that they can choose love Mm-hmm. Exactly. As a thoughtful response in every situation, circumstance, and interaction that they have. And choosing love doesn't mean capitulating. <laughs> it doesn't mean it does not. falling over. It means being strong. Yes, yes. Together, we all have to do our part to be part of the solution, to creating a safer, more peaceful, and loving world. So, Don, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. I appreciate that. And thank you all, Choose Love Friends, for staying with us. Help us spread the message. Until next time, choose love. It's all part of us. We can all choose love in a 